Kopitiam Conversations. This is Kopitiam Conversations. I'm your host, Winston, and for this episode, my guest is Dr. Juliana Yi. Dr. Juliana Yi is the Assistant Dean of Yale College and Director of the Asian American Cultural Center at Yale University. Prior to joining Yale, Dr. Yi served as a Residence Hall Director at the University of Connecticut for four years where she worked closely with campus partners to create an inclusive and equitable living and learning environment. Dr. Yi's dedication to serving Asian and Asian American students and striving for social justice stems from her own re-racialization experiences as an Asian international undergraduate student at Miami University over a decade ago. She recently completed her term as co-chair for the National Association of Student Personnel Administrators, Asia-Pacific Islander Knowledge Community. Good morning to you over there. And now, uh, Juliana, you're both Assistant Dean for Yale College and Director of the Asian American Cultural Center at Yale University. Now, what are the job scopes and responsibilities for each of these roles? Maybe you can shed some light on that. Yeah, and um, you know, I think it's so funny that we're even having this conversation yeah. um, in this manner. I'm really excited to, first of all, be on your podcast. Um, you've known me since I was like 12. So I think that adds a special, you know, Yep. Um, special tone to this whole conversation oh, yeah. um, and oh, yeah. I'm excited that you know me beyond my titles obviously um, and so these titles are, are really um, just a, a, a snippet or, or really a surface level of of what um, yeah what my life is about um, nevertheless it is all-consuming and <laughs> being an assistant dean and director um, at Yale has definitely been a really um, interesting and I would say it has a shift every year. I'm at Yale in my fourth year now Um, and every year I think the roles have developed and shifted um, as I'm, you know, getting more comfortable with the institution. Um, So at this point, you know, being assistant dean really entails like sitting on a, you know, a couple of different committees, um, some that are university-wide, um, so and then some that are college-wide. So I'm an assistant dean for Yale College. What that means is Yale College is the college that uh, is the umbrella for all undergraduate students that attend Yale University. Um, so it can be a bit confusing. Like people are like, wait, what? Is <laughs> Yale University part of Yale College? Yes. They're all part of the same thing. It's just to delineate whether it's undergraduate or graduate students. And so as part of my assistant dean duties, I you know, serve on the admissions committee um, as one of the members uh, of the admissions committee. I take on advising of first year students and transfer students. Um, I also am a member of like the Yale College faculty where you know we make a lot of academic decisions and we vote um, on various things that impact the day-to-day experience of our Yale students and yeah I get called to serve on various kind of special uh, or standing committees and I'm also part of the Intercultural Affairs Council which is a really critical body that you know, brings people from across campus together to really think about the type of learning environment we're trying to create at Yale. 
And I think that leads into my other role as a director of the Asian American Cultural Center at Yale. Um, the Cultural Center, I would say, it's, is a very unique space. Um, it is the third oldest of its kind in the United States on a college campus. So there are maybe only 30-something Asian American Cultural Centers across the country um, in the U.S. And Yale's was established in 1981. So we turned 40 this year. Woo-woo. Um, and so I get to be part of, you know, a really long history um, of Asian and Asian Americans at Yale. Um, and a lot of, as I'm learning in my role, a lot of alumni who were involved um, during their time at Yale have gone on to shape a lot of what Asia and Asian American experiences look like. And so what my role there looks like is more so um, creating community. That's the foundational piece, right? Creating community for those who either identify as Asian or identify with the cultures of Asia, um, and then also creating opportunities for identity development and discovery. Because as we know, you know, like being Malaysian and being Chinese for me is like a really big part of my identity. Being Christian right. is also a really big part of my identity. So, but oftentimes we don't necessarily have, you know, like the opportunities to, especially in the US, if you grew up in like rural Ohio, and you're the only Asian there, you don't have as much opportunity to really discover or understand what that means to you because you're just trying to fit in and you're just right. trying to not get picked on. Um, so oftentimes when students come to college, it's their first opportunity to really grapple with what that means, with, grapple with the history of being Asian in the US, which is a very long history, um, and just be more comfortable with who they are and, and you know what that means for them and how that might impact the way they move through the world, because it does, right? How we're visually seen and the stereotypes that are, um, you know, both that are attached to to our identities in the U.S. And, and really also it's an opportunity, um, it's a space where we educate other um, people who don't identify as Asian to, to better understand what it means to be Asian in the U.S. And I, I would say third fold for the center yeah. is you know, it's really a space that advocates for the needs of um, Asian identifying students because, you know, as much as we want to believe <laughs> that, you know, things are progressive and there are no issues, unfortunately, there continue to be human bias, right? And, and again, people are coming from all walks of life. So sometimes it's, it's due to ignorance. Um, you know, I would say, Oftentimes, it's not due to malice. It's often due to just like lack of exposure right. um, and human nature fearing things they don't know. So our space is, you know, has really served as a, a like a platform to advocate for for students' needs um, that don't um, represent the norm or the majority. Right. So we really work in collaboration with other cultural centers. So we have three other cultural centers. La Casa um, Latino Cultural Center, the Native American Cultural Center, and the Afro American Cultural Center are the four, uh, the, uh, all together make up the four cultural centers at Yale. And then there are, uh, you know, a variety of other, um, I would say, student affairs offices that really work to advocate for, for students who are you know just come from a historically marginalized um, population and so together 
we are often trying to help the institution think um, beyond kind of the the typical student. Like, who is the typical student, and why does that get to be the typical student? You know, and and how do we make space for people who don't fall within the quote unquote norm? Um, and and so I think in a nutshell, that's that's kind of what my two roles entail. All right. So to digress a little bit, those mm-hmm. four cultural centers they represent how many percent of the university. It's important to recognize that these cultural centers are university resources. So they technically represent 100% of the students. But in terms of I think what you're asking for is like a racial breakdown. I don't think you can quote me on these stats uh, because I'm not like remembering exactly off the top of my head. No uh, but for the Asian identifying students which do not include international students we represent about 20% so we are the largest minority majority and then that is followed by i believe <clears throat> latin latino students um, at like 10% i want to say black students at 9% and then native american students at like barely like 1 1 or 2% right. um and that's i would say reflective especially for the native american students um reflective of just the historical harms and inequities that have um occurred in the US that still cause um you know native and indigenous people to be very very underrepresented in any kind of higher education setting not just Yale that looks like, a, like quite a handful for you how are you <laughs> able to devote your time juggling these two roles <laughs> i'm still learning <laughs> um <laughs> And I mean it's it's definitely been bumpy right especially with covid and throwing just everything for a loop all our lives has just changed um I think the nature of my job has also changed it it varies uh I think some days I'm really very focused more on the director piece of my role and then other days you know I'm more more focused on my assistant dean roles but yeah to be honest I don't know if I'm necessarily doing a great job uh, trying to find balance but yeah I think I work a lot of hours as a result and yeah it's also like thankfully having a good team you know to work with a good team of students who are really dedicated and creative and then having a coworker who who I supervise um you know be very reliable as well so i think without them i wouldn't be able to as gracefully try to juggle um you know these these roles having good team matters because who you're reporting to who's reporting to you who are your lateral colleagues and all that that really matters because that create either a harmonious working relationship or a tumultuous one what would a typical day for an assistant dean doubling up as the director of asian american cultural center would be like <laughs> um well we'll talk about pre covid cuz i think you know pre-COVID, the year yeah. This past year and a half has just kind of been uh, an anomaly. Yeah, um but pre-covid, yeah, like I wouldn't really go into the office until like 10 p- right. uh, a.m. because mm-hmm. I usually have a later end to my day. So part of what I love about my job is there is no typical day but also there's a lot of flexibility in the hours. So yeah, I typically maybe work like 8 hours a day in a full day but how those 8 hours look like or where they fall it's really up to me and so there's a lot of kind of 
latitude and autonomy in, in figuring out you know what works best for me so typically I, I get in around 10 my assistant dean office is actually separate from the, the Asian American Cultural Center um, so the first half of my day is physically usually spent there because I'm in like committee meetings or you know various things or I might take a meeting somewhere else in on campus where I travel to to meet someone and, and meet in their office instead um, so there's usually not much time spent sitting down. I'm you know, constantly on the move. You know, a lot of my work is, is about people and making decisions collaboratively. Um, so I'm, I'm rarely ever just like sitting alone in my office. Um, and even when I'm in my office, you know, my door is open. Someone's always popping in, chatting. Um, and it's a lot about building relationships, especially at Yale. Um, a lot of things get done because of relationships. Right. Um, and, and people are, it's a very people oriented place um, and not to mention students are who we serve so you know students are always making appointments or whatever so it depends right some days I don't have meetings with students um, and some days I have like a ton and then I would say after lunch like I would usually spend the rest of my day in the physical space of the cultural center which is located on a different part of campus and I'll usually just plot myself somewhere you know, I have my laptop, that's really my main work computer. So I'm constantly like traveling with it in my purse and, you know, getting my steps in as I get to that part of campus. Um, yeah, and I'll hang out in the center and, you know, either do one-on-ones um, with my staff because that's a really important part for me in terms of supervising people is ensuring that they're doing okay as a whole person and then focusing also on the tasks that need to be done um, and I, I, you know, over my decade in, in education really place a lot of um, importance on, on supervising people as a whole person and not just, you know, the part of their job that they are responsible to me for. So those one-on-ones are, are pretty critical, um, I would say, in like a success of my team. Um, and then typically the day ends with like, either attending or, or leading an event, right? So events, community events are a big part of what we do at the center, um, whether it's student facing or community facing, um, oftentimes it happens at the center itself. So it's a really great way to, you know, it could be a casual kind of more cultural focus event where people are doing a food fundraiser or something, or we're usually having talks like educational talks where we bring like you know, speakers and and the reason why it happens in the evenings is because students are in classes during the day. Oh yeah. So that's why I tend to, you know, end my work day around like seven, seven thirty, eight. So yeah, I guess that's what a pre COVID day would look like typically. Sounds like a very people oriented kind of a role. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So when do you do all those paper shuffling kind of jobs, you know, those task oriented <laughs> documentation and yeah I would say that's what the mornings are for ah, um, you okay. know if I'm not in a meeting I'm like responding to emails um, unfortunately my emails also on my phone <laughs> so if you know I need to do anything quickly I can do it I mean you know these days everything is electronic even for like something as simple as like processing charges on my you know uh, card my Yale credit card I can do it on my phone too so yeah. I kind of like do it when I have pockets of time here and there, you know, in between meetings. I tend to try and build in like, you know, 15 to 30 minute buffers between meetings. 
right. um, either for travel or if I'm not having to travel for the meeting, I can just sit and like, you know, get some paperwork stuff done. Um, but I think we try not to be too paperwork heavy unless yep. it's necessary. So that's, I think, a good part of my job too. Like we're not constantly having to write reports, um, just annual reports and annual kind of like feedback. Um, I would say so that more so happens in the beginning and the end of the academic year. Being in an academic administration, you know, you can't escape the paperwork and, and <laughs> all that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a part of my role is to say, hey, this is redundant. <laughs> like, why are we still doing this? <laughs> right. And, and slowly but surely people are changing. And I think my boss is also not very paperwork heavy kind of person. Right. Um, which I appreciate. So it's it hasn't it doesn't take up too too much time. But we definitely send a lot of emails. Like way too many emails. <laughs> way too many emails here as well. Yeah. Yeah. Emails it. are the bane of my existence. Uh, <laughs> and you have um, it in your phone. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then we have Slack, right? Which we use to kind of do team chats and like Microsoft Teams. So it's just yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah. Why did I get yeah. Teams on my phone anyways? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't I say know. this. Yeah, the students will start stalking me after this. Why aren't you replying to <laughs> <my> messages? <No. laughs> I don't respond to messages after 8 p.m. <laughs> I you, try you, to anyway. Are you kidding me? They're still contacting me at 10 or 11. I mean, they sure do. They, I mean, they will send emails at all hours of the night. So I'm, I'm just not going to respond. You don't really laugh or cry. I guess I admire the enthusiasm, but there's, of course, there must be some kind of line drawn between working hours and rest hours and yeah 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 i think our uh, students are, are starting to be more understanding about that but yeah. yeah it's very much on me to also set those boundaries and, and oh, yeah. role model uh, balance so that's something I'm, I've definitely been working on over my years i think as a new professional i was you know very eager to just like oh, yeah. respond to everything i was single at the time so it wasn't a big deal but i'm like I have. I should have a life, regardless of whether I'm single or not. You know, I shouldn't have to be on your beck and call like at all hours of the night. So, that's a learning work in progress. Uh, Juliana, I'm going to change tracks a little bit and maybe you know, uh, yeah. look at things on a more somber tone now. Mm-hmm. This year, we saw the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes in the U.S., and this was largely the result of Asian Americans being targeted and blame for the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Labels like, you know, Kung Flu or you know, Chinese virus. According to a 2020 Pew Research study, 58% of Asian Americans believe that racist views towards them had increased since the pandemic. Now, of course, this came to a head quite recently in uh, March 16 in Atlanta, whereby there was a series of shootings. And of course, um, this isn't helped by the circulation of videos whereby yeah, elderly Asians are being attacked and all these videos are being surfaced on the internet, right? So reactions spark the Stop Asian Hate or were you ever a target of Asian hate crimes? Unfortunately, it's it's rampant and it I would say it's not something new. Like I've been in the US for over 10 years now and have experienced it throughout my time here. Yeah, so I've been in Ohio for context. I've been in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, which are all three in the Midwest. And I've been in Connecticut, 
you know, and obviously traveled throughout, but lived in Connecticut for for a good number of years as well. And yeah, it's like something that has been experienced in in every part of the U.S. Um, so I don't, I think the stereotype is often like, oh, it's you know, people who are uneducated in some rural town who have never seen an Asian face before. Th- those are the racists, right? But <laughs> unfortunately, in fact, I think the pervasiveness of like negative stereotypes you know as it relates or inaccurate um, depictions of Asians in popular media has led people to say things that are just really ignorant um, and hateful Um, and you know oftentimes they think it's a joke and they kind of say it and then they run off they don't really stay to deal with with the circumstances and it's you as the person receiving it that's like left to feel, to deal with the emotions of, you know, every, the aftermath. Uh, I would say during COVID, I'm fortunate that like physically I was never, you know, accosted or harmed in any way. Um, Although those videos were certainly, that have been circulated, were certainly very scary, right, to see. um, And certainly I would say caused a lot of emotional stress uh, and psychological stress because we obviously like you know my in-laws are elderly they live in new jersey um so those are those are things that we were worried about in terms of their safety um you know and a lot of these videos are circulated without context um and i think that adds to the fear um and i would say popular media is partly to blame for this because the way they cover these news stories um are not very well done and they don't often it doesn't they don't help the cause let's just say that and i think they're though the videos that go most viral have been the ones that um feature black perpetrators but studies have actually shown since um that 70 like more than 70 percent of the attackers have been white so i think that's something you know to like i'm still grappling with what that means you know why is it that that videos, uh, certain videos uh, get circulated more than others and you know what does uh, and are we not thinking like we can't say that every every hate incident is the same you know like some people like the context of the attacker is very different for different people right like some people could be mentally ill some people could like just be homeless and and on on some kind of substance and that's what led them to do something violent or, or some people are just really hateful like the shooter in Atlanta clearly um, was it was a targeted attack and that I think also really you know rocked me to my core as an Asian woman living in the US um, even though I, I, I live you know thousands of miles away from Atlanta I think that's just you know the way that we're able to see ourselves in the victims I think that's really usually what shakes you. Um, nevertheless, I think, you know, all the, the, the attacks that have happened during COVID, even like whether it's police brutality, you know, against innocent black unarmed people or, you know, just racial attacks, like all of it hurts um, because, you know, God created all of us. And so I see my humanity in every one of these people, regardless of their race. Right. And I wish that was more of the case, right, for everyone. But unfortunately, I feel like this, this like um, understanding of race and is is a bit 
um, divisive, right? I think in, in the current times that we're in, you know, the words that you mentioned earlier were coined by the previous president who is, you know, like holding the most powerful office in the land. And he he was just throwing it around, right? And yep. I think it's it's no surprise to people that these these attacks against Asian have increased because there's always been a fear of communism, right? Like there's always been a fear of the rise of China um, threatening the US as the dominant power. And I think the unique experience or the unique thing about Asian experience in the US is anything that happens abroad with a country overseas actually shows up here. Like it actually impacts our day-to-day kind of lived experience because Asians have always been seen as like a perpetual foreigner. Like we're always from somewhere else. And I mean, in my case, I'm actually from somewhere else. Um, But in the case of a lot of other Asian and Asian Americans, some of them have been here for three, four, five, six generations even, right? But I think in the the psyche of like, you know, the non-Asian person on the street, they often think of us as just having come from somewhere. Um, And hence, there's a suspicion of like our loyalty to this country or the fact that we belong. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's tough when you have someone who is supposed to be the respected person in office right. saying these kinds of think it, things, among other things. Um, he, he was truly a white supremacist, I would say. Uh, but, you know, he really gave legitimacy to people's hate, right? And legitimacy to dehumanize us based solely based on how we look and like, you know, anyone who, who was Chinese or looked Chinese, so you could be Filipino and still be mistaken as Chinese, you you really were like given stares and you know, like I walk around and I feel like sometimes people are like looking at me if I cough, you know, like I can't even <laughs> cough in public anymore. Like I always joke with Nick, uh, my husband, I'm like coughing in public is like a crime now, you know, especially yeah. if you're Asian because then people are like, oh, you know, you have the virus. And like something as simple as wearing a mask you know, to protect others has been politicized to no end and it's so ridiculous, right? And like, for example, you know, a kind of like confrontation that we had was Nick and I were hiking with a friend um, because honestly, nature has been our saving grace. Thank God for nature and being able to get outdoors during COVID really helped like our mental health and just physical health to just be able to move and not worry about like the virus. But nevertheless, we still wore masks because at that time we were not vaccinated. We don't know who is carrying what. And if they run into us on the hiking trail, we didn't want to get, you know, like COVID. So we were like hiking with our mask on, you know, no, like minding our own business. Ahead of us is this elderly, but very fit, you know, um, white gentleman with a dog. He was like half shirt. He was shirtless and he was just enjoying his hike. And we were behind him, you know, we didn't say anything. And then he stopped to like take a breather. And then I realized that he was wearing a hat and on his hat it said, make America great again. And I was like, okay, great. (laughs) Now we know who he supports. And then, you know, he is, you know, like, like walking past us and we were taking a break and then he decided to obviously go around us. And he, you know, we weren't in his way or anything. And he was like, why are you wearing masks? Are you crazy? You know, and I were like, what do you mean? <laughs> are you crazy for not wearing a mask? You know, like, why is this an issue? We're not asking you to wear a mask. 
you know, and he was just like, you know, scoffed at us. And then, you know, uh, we were with a, 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 a friend's family member who's a doctor and he was like, don't forget what Dr. Fauci said, like, you know, kind of using humor right. um, to, to get back at him. But, you know, there was just so much animosity in his exchange with us, right. you know, and we literally didn't do anything, right? But I think that's just how these things happen. Like, it's, it's not because of us. It's not because of anything that we did other than to exist. And he didn't like the fact that we were existing in his space wearing a mask, you know. Um, and he felt the need to say something and, and express his displeasure. Um, but I think that's often how a lot of these, you know, exchanges and hate crimes happen. It's a lot of verbal harassment. I would say majority of it is, is a lot of verbal harassment that is completely like out of nowhere, you know, and it, it it's kind of sits with you and you have to like then process and deal with it. Um, so I would say that that has been a majority of my experience <laughs> living in the U.S. and then also you know during COVID. But working from home, um, you know, has been a huge blessing because we don't have to go out and we don't have to deal with that. Right. Um, and I think that's I would say a lot of the concern that people, especially who are living in the cities, you know, and have to commute to work in public transportation. I think that's a big concern for for a lot of Asian identifying people in the US is person like safety and psychological, emotional and physical safety. But yeah, I think you know, trying to look on the bright side of the fact that, you know, I I never caught COVID and, and most of our family is doing well yeah. here. Yeah, I guess with that we can be thankful. What were some of the uh, slurs or abuses you may have suffered other than this uh, instance that uh, you mentioned earlier that you went hiking. So, what are the, some mm-hmm. of the uh, slurs or abuses that you had suffered? I think um, it's mostly like things that you know they'll tell you like, "Oh, go back to where you came from." Like, where is that? My mother's womb, or like you know, uh, that I, I would say is probably the most common. Uh, you know, when perpetual they're perpetual foreigner. Um, yeah, just talk- like oh, if you're so upset about like this country then why don't you go back to where you came from yeah. like okay <laughs> good to know i mean it applies to me i can go back to malaysia but you know it doesn't apply to other people so i think like i have a thicker skin in that that sense because of the work that i do i'm like you know what are you gonna say like i don't think i'm surprised anymore and i think growing up in malaysia also as an ethnic minority there right like racism is not new um it, it just looks different um, it looks different in different countries, in different contexts. And I think for me, you know, if people say anything based on my gender, you know, like, you know, China doll or whatever, it's, it's, it doesn't feel good, but I'm also able to kind of like let it roll off um, a little bit easier now. I think I'm, as a woman who's small in stature, I'm, I'm, my first priority is my physical safety. Um, so if you know ever anyone says anything, looks at me a certain way, like I'm out of there because I don't even want to deal with the possibility of something happening. Um, but so far, I would say, you know, other than like stares or just like people kind of literally avoiding me, I haven't had any like direct kind of racial slurs said to me in the past year because really working from home <laughs> like I really haven't gone out much other than to go to the grocery store um, or you know outdoor stuff which 
usually people are running or, or biking and, and they're giving you a smile or not yeah. and that's it. Um, yeah, so I would say the biggest confrontation was that one on the hike. Right. And even then, I was like, didn't want to entertain him because I think, you know, oftentimes when people say these things, I think of them as just really disturbed and, you know, not peaceful people. They're probably angry at something right. and they feel the need to direct it to me because of, you know, whatever is in the news or, you know, it's just I'm an easy target. Even the statistics show that, you know, Asian women are often targeted uh, more than men, like three times as much because we look less threatening. We don't look like we're able to, to fend for ourselves in a sense. Um, so knowing that, right, like I just walk away. That's really like de-escalation is my goal. Yeah, I try not to hold on to these things either. You, you don't really want that kind of energy to like stay with you. So yeah. I just kind of like let it go and pray for them. Yes. I've definitely said God bless you <laughs> to people before. <laughs> right. um, when they yell something, you know, like really hateful, I'm just like, yep, God bless you too. <laughs> and I just walk away. Uh, and sometimes they're thrown off. They're like, don't know what to do with that. So, you know, part of it is, is just kind of, it's like a, a judo mind trick, Jedi mind trick, you know? <laughs> yeah, like you give me negative, I'm going to spin it back to you positive. And then right. you get thrown off and then I can leave. And that's the end of the you know, right. interaction. Yeah, good strategy. What are some of the items on the agenda that you had to work on in your position as the director of Asian American Center? Um, mm -hmm. to promote tolerance and acceptance at your university and maybe uh, to a certain extent New Haven or Connecticut much? It's a good question. Um, I think the there are some items that change, right? And then there are some items that um, remain the same. I would say a big one that goes, I would say even beyond Yale, is data disaggregation. So as you know very well, Asia is a very, very diverse region, right? And so the fact that Asian American as a racial category encompasses all, you know, like 60-something countries, oh, 64, yeah. it's just insane to me. Um, and it makes my job very difficult in terms of really understanding the needs of each population, as oh, yeah. you know, right? And then there's also the delineation between international students and then U.S. Asian Americans. Um, and so data disaggregation is really the call for getting more disaggregated data. So when we say someone identifies as Asian, can we get a little bit more info about that? Like, what is their country of origin if they're international? Mm -hmm. Or if they're not, then, you know, what is kind of like their ethnic background, which is different from race? Right. So like, I'm Malaysian, Chinese, like, you know, that kind of helps you understand a little bit more. And then you can put those groups of people together and then within that there's even more diversity so i think the problem right now in at, you know in higher education institutions and in general the da data that's being collected is you just check one box and then you get lumped in and then there's no understanding of of within that one checkbox who is who and and what is what because if you think about me, I came as an international student, you know, I came here by choice. I obviously had the funds to fund my, you know, undergraduate education, thanks to my parents for being good savers. Um, but that's very different from, you know, someone who came here as a refugee from Southeast Asia, right? And 
and the research actually shows that people who come here as refugees, those communities like Hmong, Cambodia, um, you know, Laos, the, the poverty and the crime rates within those communities are much higher. The mental health issues within those communities are much higher. So they actually need different kinds of resources compared to perhaps, um, you know, someone whose parents came here as professional uh, doctors, lawyers, you know, they're just a, a very different kind of experience. Not to say that they don't work hard, but there's just different needs there. Um, and I, so I think data disaggregation continues to be a and will probably continue to be a long-standing issue with regards to what I'm advocating for because I think we we can't meet the needs of, of students um, adequately if we don't actually know who they are um, and so that's a big one I think in addition to that uh, mental health right. services continue to be a big um, piece especially with this past year and a half I think that oh, yeah. everywhere that's, yeah it's for everyone, you know, like, but I think, um, I think our communities of color or uh, our, you know, lower income communities, they're, they're struggle, they're struggling on, on various fronts. And so I think, you know, mental health services need to be more responsive to that. They can't just treat everyone's trauma the same way, because I think, um, and then research has also shown that, you know, in terms of Asians, they are, I would say, three times less likely to seek mental health services, even though they need it. Why is that? Um, why is that? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I can share the study with you to see what they said. Um, but my understanding and, you know, in working with other mental health professionals here who are Asian Americans is really because like culturally mental health is often stigmatized. Right. It's still not understood as, as a real issue. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like seen as a Amer like a Western problem, you know, like mm -hmm. mental health issues are things that only white people can experience. Yep. And it's really misunderstood, right? I think because of movies that we see people in a straight jacket, like, you know, like, oh, you have to be crazy, right? In order right. to get any kind of help. But I'm like, there's psychiatric help and then there's therapy, which is really for anyone, right? Um, and it's something that like I encourage my students, you know, because they're in a high pressure environment to go seek. Um, and I think it's a huge mental, ironically, mental burden uh, or, or barrier, I would say, to get over because they're worried that their parents um, will view them as, as less, less than or not enough um, or broken if they seek any kind of therapy. So I think a lot of it's cultural because, you know, like our parents didn't have the... I would say it is a luxury to get any kind of mental health help because you often have to come out of pocket um, for the cost, um, especially, you know, back where we grew up. So I think our parents were at a, you know, level where they were just trying to survive and put food on the table. So they didn't really have the space or the opportunity to really process trauma. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, I think it showed up in how we were raised, um, you know, in, in some in unproductive ways. And I think by the gr grace of God, they are being healed, um, but not everyone, right, can just rely or, or wait on that because everyone has like different capacities. So yeah, I think mental health is a big one that we're continuing to to face um, in, in today's society with all the like just unexpected dangerous events that, you know, has happened in our lifetimes.
I do worry about raising kids here, but <laughs> yeah, there's so much gun violence too. Oh, yeah. um, that's been really terrible. Um, yeah, so mental health is big, and then I think, in terms of Yale, we're we're often thinking about accessibility, right? So what does that mean? I think there's obviously like accessibility for people with physical impediments, but I'm also thinking about economic accessibility. As you know, a Yale degree is not cheap um, by any means, yeah. um, and we do have a very large endowment um, that I think is a major privilege that like a lot of other universities don't have uh, and I think that allows us to provide full scholarships to students international or domestic to, if they're qualified right. um, but then once they get here I think there are a lot of other kind of financial barriers that they they then discover because obviously tuition is not the only cost of college and so you know a lot of different things become like a barrier so for example like at the Asian American Cultural Center we have you know retreats we make it free completely right um, because we don't want students to have to worry about like oh I can't afford you know a $50 fee for this trip and hence I can't go um, so I think that's something we're continually being mindful about like how do we utilize our budget and resources to ensure that if you're a low-income student and you, you know your family doesn't have the resources to give you all the extra stuff um, and you're really just here on a full ride um, or, or um, you have a pretty big portion of it coming from Yale's like financial aid, right. how can we ensure that you don't feel like you have to opt out um, of experiences because you don't have the money. So I think that's continually something that Yale as a whole is working on and then I'm also being very conscious of within my role. Um, because sometimes students don't want to tell you, they feel embarrassed that you know they can't afford something. So rather than put students in the position of having to ask, we are trying to be as proactive as possible to just make it free. Um, no questions asked type of thing. And um, so I think that's, we're very fortunate at Yale to have those resources to be able to do it. So these retreats are fully funded by Yale or do you have donors and you know, benefactors that actually made this um, financial support available for the students? I would say right now I'm making like it's large, I would say yeah mostly funded by Yale. Um, it's in our, it's what I make room for in our annual budget. But I think there are those one-off things you know like if a student wanted to travel to a conference to present their paper. As an undergraduate student, you don't often get that funding right. um, because you're not a graduate student. Graduate That's students, right. I think, is more understood. Like, oh yeah, you're a PhD, so you should have to go. Um, so undergrads often struggle with getting those funds. And so we're actually raising, um, we have like the Asian American culture has its own endowment that we're raising funds for so we can so alumni are donating to that so that we can use those funds for like one-off requests where students are like, oh my gosh, I have this really amazing opportunity and I need it, but I don't have the funds. And then, you know, hopefully we can help fund some of that, whether it's just the flight or maybe the hotel or something. So yeah, it's a little bit of both. Over the last couple of years, uh, we have also seen a very unlikely representation of Asian-American emerged in the political arena in the form of Democratic candidate Andrew Yang. 
who eventually suspended his campaign as a Democratic nominee for president. I think we had some coverage on CNN over here. So are you expecting a greater representation of Asian Americans in the political arena following his lead or maybe perhaps <laughs> rising up from the ashes of these anti-Asian hate crimes? Uh, that Andrew Yang was a definitely interesting candidate, um, you know, and I think you'll find differing opinions about him within the Asian and Asian American <laughs> community. Right. Um, but I think in general, yes, I hope to see greater representation of Asian Americans in the political arena. I think there have been um, already, you know, Asian American women and men who have served as senators or um, you know, House representatives through before even Andrew Yang. Um, and done outside of Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. So okay, like, cool. for example, <laughs> Gary Locke, right? He uh, is actually a Yale alum. I didn't know that until I started working <laughs> at Yale. Um, but he was the first Asian American to represent, uh, to be a, sen a senator in, in Congress um, years ago. And he's actually, um, the former um, senator for Washington State, so outside of Hawaii. <laughs> um, he ended up being also like the ambassador to China um, oh. during one of the presidential, yeah, during one of the presidential terms. But yeah, he was the first Chinese American governor ever in US history, and that was in 96. So I don't think, you know, everyone gets as much press coverage as Andrew Yang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but certainly there have been people both from Democratic and Republican Party um, to have shown up in the political arena. I would say the thing that I'm most mindful of is not supporting someone just because they're Asian, right? Yeah. Um, clearly, you know, you have people like Bobby Jindal who are probably only claiming their race when it's convenient um, to their politics, but really otherwise have no interest in doing anything for the benefit of the community, but it's really like trying to benefit himself. He was the governor in, I think, Louisiana, um, and he's very conservative um, in ways that, you know, don't really, I would say, put the interest of, of all people in mind. So, yeah, I think I expect, you know, a lot more like regular folks, not, um, not just kind of lifetime polit professional politicians, um, to show up um, and I think it's because of you know people like um, AOC you know Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez she was someone who was a bartender and now is, is um, in the House of Congress representing right. the people of, of Brooklyn I think <laughs> very well um, and so I think it's because of examples like her and stories like hers that have um, really encouraged more people to be the solution um, to the problems that they have seen for as long as they've been in this country. Asian representation in Hollywood. So of course, Asian representation in Hollywood since the 1970s was about typecasting the Asian hero as the martial art expert with little or no romantic interest, you know, that, that all fighter, all brawn, you know, not a lover type of character in the mold of maybe Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan or as usually the comic relief. Okay, the guy that is just put there to make you laugh. And I think uh, one of those characters was, you know, typecutting Asian in a very negative way, like Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? Okay, mm -hmm. I think they're that character. I can't remember what his name. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in a way, we see more Asian representation in big budgeted Hollywood movies in the last few to five years. 
with Crazy Rich Asians. Mulan, the, the remake of the Mulan in live action. And of course, uh, the animation uh, Raya and the Last Dragon, which is supposed to be based in Southeast Asia. And of course, the form, uh, forthcoming Marvel's Shang-Chi, which is an Asian superhero. But at the same time, with the exception of Crazy Rich Asian, these movies are still within the confines of the Asian stereotypes. All right, Raya and the Last Dragon. Raya is a martial art, martial artist. All right, Mulan. Well, she's a martial artist. Yeah, and Shang Chi is a martial artist, a kung fu superhero or whatever it is. It's within the confines of the Asian stereotypes. Now, what are your thoughts on this? Has representation really come a long way? Yeah, I think that's a really great question and uh, astute observation. Um, of the progress or lack thereof <laughs> that has been made in Hollywood and in you know kind of um, U.S. representation of Asians in popular media, I think obviously the last five, I would say, to ten years have have seen a huge shift or uh, increase in Asians being represented. I want to credit YouTube, <laughs> an unlikely source, but YouTube has actually put a lot of power of representation into the hands of just like regular people um, and there are a ton of talented people right who can pick up a camera and go create their own stuff so i feel like in that sense it has democratized some of the representation but obviously you know the big blockbuster hollywood films are still the ones that get the most yeah. kind of attention and eyeball viewing and reach and so yeah i would say that you know even Crazy Rich Asians, you know, one might argue that the book was better. I think the book was better. <laughs> the book series was was certainly better than the movie, but nevertheless, it you know it was a cause for celebration because it was actually a big fight to even get it funded. Right. Um, because people, the people, the powers that be, the people that fund these things, actually didn't believe there was an audience for it. They didn't believe that anyone would want to see Asians in a lead romantic you know, um, kind of role. Why? Because clearly their understanding as, of Asians is still so limited to right. kind of those butt of the joke um, or martial arts <laughs> type roles. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's very on point, uh, kind of your critique and observation. Um, and I think there, some progress has been made clearly, like, but really we have to kind of show up to the kind of box office openings with with our dollars because that's really the only way to to help the execs making those decisions understand uh, what we want to see so i even think like things marvel has definitely been a great platform for for making a lot of not just asians but like um you know like the black panther movie was huge for black black people but that also blew expectations out of the water like you know the people who approved that didn't really think they yeah it was kind of like a test you know and and like hmm and i think black panther success is making the way for marvel sanctuary for note without a doubt you know like that is it set the precedent for saying all right there is a market for this but why are we still having this question in 2020 you know like you would think right that people yeah. would be a bit more progressive but they're not they you know, they constantly write scripts for for people who look a certain way, and I think you know a lot of my students who are actually even trying to get into Hollywood are starting to see that 
being an actor is only like having more Asian actors is only part of the solution. Having more writers in the writing room is actually the other half of the issue, right? And how do you how do these writers even get into those kinds of movies and get onto those kind of projects so that they can write scripts that are more imaginative and and more represent like a broader representation of of Asian experiences. So like the movie The Farewell amazing that was so good right like for once like I felt like I could see parts of my own narrative you know represented on screen and it it wasn't in a stereotypical way so you know I think hopefully we can see more of that like I know Aquafina has done um you know other projects as well um like Nora from Queens I think that's like a TV show that she's oh, yeah. in I haven't seen it myself but it's kind of cool that she's like able to kind of depict her own life um you know i think she was raised by her grandparents um and and kind of be depicted on on a tv show so you know there are steps um like mindy kaling has that netflix show never have i ever you know i think there are some problematic this depictions there also with regards to like indian and like casteism but that's a conversation for another day we yep. you know nothing is perfect i think it's it's more about putting more out there and allowing things to fail you know i think sometimes <laughs> the something i've noticed here is you know because you get so little everyone wants everything to be perfect but i'm like crazy rich asians doesn't have to be perfect it's still good for what it is and let's make sure we support it so that more can come out cuz you don't ever hear like someone who casts you know what like romantic novel like Uh, what's that series? Um, like the Notebook, right? Like right, right. the author. Like there are so many movies made from the from books written by that author. I Nicholas Sparks. Yeah. Yes, Nicholas Sparks. There are probably like 50 Nicholas Sparks movies. <laughs> Not all really? of them are the Notebook level, right? Yeah. But you don't hear anyone complaining about like oh, like you know that's gonna ruin white culture. Like it's not. <laughs> so how do we just allow more room, right, for mistakes and? Right. And on and the funders who fund these projects also need to allow more room for mistakes. Like not everything has to be at a multi-million dollar like blockbuster for it to prove that it's worthy. You know, so I think there is a lot of work left. <laughs> <laughs> What is your advice to undergraduate or graduate Malaysian students looking to study in the United States? Ooh, stay um, or stay away for now. <laughs> <laughs> um, proceed at your own risk. <laughs> um, you know, I think studying in the US it's very interesting because it's such a big country, and I think every state, as you know, as much as we want to say it's United States, fifty-one states, every state is almost like its own country. Right. And so, depending on where you end up, the experience is is going to be rather different. So. I think an advice, you know, because oftentimes we don't have the luxury of like coming here and doing a campus tour and all that. That's like stuff that domestic students uh, or really wealthy people have the opportunity to come and like check out campuses. You know, I didn't do that. I I picked my college based off of a, a U.S. you know university and college fair that's I think held once a year in KL. Like I went into a room in a hotel ballroom and like there were like you know. 
25 colleges with tables and then one recruiter standing there like come to my university and I'm like okay Talk like about familiar, yep. <laughs> yeah yeah so that's literally all I had and then the website right so right. I think nowadays um, universities are trying I mean that was like you know in early 2000s I think US universities now are a little bit more globally oriented they're trying to think a little bit more about how to um, recruit international students and help them better transition because it is a bit of a culture shock if you just like come here suddenly for the first time. Um, so I would say like try to take advantage of virtual info sessions um, to try to get a sense of like what the international student experience will be like because oftentimes we are kind of an afterthought and I was fortunate in that the university I went to did have uh, really supportive staff members who really cared for international students beyond their job. Like in Ohio they, or in Chicago? In Ohio. Ohio. Um, I, I didn't need it as much in Chicago because I was like much older then. But you know, when I came at 19, I think as an undergraduate student, yeah, I really needed more that support. I was in like rural Ohio and there was this couple who, you know, the wife worked in, um, they were called the Littles. <laughs> and, you know, they worked in the university where I went and they would host, you know, Thanksgiving, they would host, you know, just like different uh, activities or meals for international students out of their own pocket, right? So, uh, you know, things, looking back, I think I don't regret my decision at all. Um, I linked up with other Malaysian students prior to coming that really, really helped. So I would say try to do that. Um, if you can ask, you can ask your international admissions office to say, can you share the names of other Malaysians or other, you know, students from Singapore or whatever, to so you can get connected with people from the same background to at least help you navigate together. So it didn't feel so alone in that sense. Like everywhere I went, I had my two Malaysian friends um, to kind of process together. Like, hey, like you know, even though one was from Penang and one was from um, PJ, and we kind of grew up very differently, it still helped to have someone you can just say la with, you know, and not have to worry about people not understanding your accent and things like that. And then, you know, there were obviously a lot of classroom experiences that we shared um, that helped normalize some of the, the culture shock transitions um, and really helped with the homesickness because we could like, you know, go find roti chanai or something together, just like random stuff. So I would definitely advise that, that regardless of undergraduate or graduate, like try to proactively link up with people um, before getting to campus that really helps um, and you know sometimes they might not have that built into the support system but maybe you asking the question might help them think like oh maybe I should link up all these international students um, and not just email them instructions about visas all the time because like that's important but that is actually just the start of like your transition and then I think the other thing uh, I would say is get involved with, you know, studies are important, obviously, um, but getting involved with organizations, whether it's like cultural organizations or just things that pique your interest. Like for me, I volunteered with like Habitat for Humanity because it's something I heard about when I um, was overseas. But then like finally being in the US, I was like, wow, I want to do this. I want to build a house. You know, like what is that like? I think those kinds of experiences kind of push me out of my comfort zone to meet people that I typically wouldn't meet yep. um, and to just get a sense of American culture or just like their lived experience and you know conversation so you know and I also got involved with like being a resident assistant on campus so right. I think those things really and then because of being an RA I, I found student affairs right and I ended up in my role so you never know like 
what you would end up in and so just being open to spending time you know being involved in things outside of the classroom i think right. is is a very very big benefit that could help your research if you're a graduate student but also just in general your your sense of like community um to grow that you know for me like looking for a church was really important but so i think th- those would probably be my like two key advice excellent it was great catching up with you joe and um i had fun talking to you today so much i could learn from you today about you know your role you know what you're doing in the us and also how things around the asian person whichever part of asia you're from right <laughs> yeah the, that whole problematic uh, terminology asian american and we we never realized it from our you know point of view over here in malaysia that that terminology asian american can be so problematic and can it's so huge and yet we only see where we belong and that sometimes problematic because we don't see from other people's perspective yeah and um i want to add that the term asian american was actually coined in like the late 1960s around the time of the civil rights movement right and it was coined by students in um UC Berkeley who were trying to galvanize kind of community spirit um and they realized that Asians from different parts of the world were not very united they were right. kind of like chinese japanese and you know korean all like very separate ethnic enclaves So they coined that term to kind of bring people together right. so that we can fight for more um I would say equity right yeah. and so I identify as Asian American not because I'm from Asia but because I understand the spirit of that political designation so that's something that we try to do at the Asian American Cultural Center is really to remind people that it's more than just a checkbox that it's it's more than just where you your parents or your great grandparents come from it's really understanding that it's a community that is grounded in historical struggle for equity and racial justice for everyone so yeah thank you joe thank you and hopefully we can have uh coffee tea in person soon um once everything blows over <laughs> yep. go be damn conversations